Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So let's, we, we, we were not here last week because of the weather, but let's, let's get to the book of Hebrews. Chapter 9 is where we're going to be tonight, but I want to just recap because we, it's been two weeks since we've looked at this. And so chapter 8 of Hebrews was all about the blessings of the new covenant. Um, Jesus is a better, he's the priest, the better high priest of the better covenant with better blessings and he mediates a better covenant. And so the question is, well, what's the new covenant? Well, it was prophesied back in um, Jeremiah. So let's just go back to chapter 8 and let's look at verse 8 because he's quoting there from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, which is the Old Testament passage of the new covenant. And he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their forefathers on the day when I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And these are the blessings of the covenant. Come on in, Julie. Um, there's, there's three things that we saw there. So number one, so I'm, let's put these up on the screen here. Number one, we would have an inner heart transformation through the new birth. We see that in verse 10. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. It's this whole idea that we'd be given a new heart. The law would come inside of us. We'd have this transformation through being born again. Number two, we would know God the Father in an intimate way. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his neighbor saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, intimately know me from the least of these to the greatest. So blessing number two is we would have this intimate knowledge of God the Father in a very special way. We'd have access to Him. And then the third blessing in the new covenant was we would have all of our sins forgiven. There in verse 12, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, He makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So in chapter 8, He promises us the new covenant. And so what chapter 9 is going to do is he's just going to continue to expound why Jesus' death on the cross is better than the Old Testament sacrificial system. Now, it may seem redundant. It seems like we keep coming back to Jesus is better than the Old Testament. Why does he have to keep coming back to this, the writer of Hebrews? Why is he kind of redundant? Why is he repeating himself? Why does he have to keep saying, hey guys, Jesus is better than the Old Testament system. Why does he have to keep doing this? What's the problem? Yes. These, the, the original audience was tempted to drift, to go back to Judaism, to go back to the sacrificial system, to go back to that old way of life and put their trust in what the Old Testament system would do for them. Okay? We may not have that problem of going back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. But let me ask you a question. Do we have a temptation to drift back to a works-based religion? Do we have that temptation? What, how does it manifest itself? What does that look like to go back to a works-based religion? What, what are we tempted to go back to? If I'm good, God will love me. If I do good works, God will accept me. If I go to church, I will be on God's good side. If I just read my Bible enough, God will let me into heaven. We we, we play those types of games, okay? Even as Christians, sometimes we think if we just do enough good, then God will love us back. And so there's always a temptation to go back to some type of system, a workspace system. And I realize I do not have a eraser. Would somebody want to go down on a racer in one of these classrooms next door or, or go find one? Thanks, Risa. So, in, in verses 1 through 10, part 1 of this passage of Scripture, we're in chapter 9 now, here's basically what he's going to tell us. For all the frequency, detail, regulations of the Day of Atonement, it could never 
perfectly cleanse and forgive sinners from all sin, but instead provided temporary relief for a year. Okay? Does that make sense? So let's read about this Day of Atonement. Let's read about the Old Testament sacrificial system and see how there were regulations. It was detailed. It was the Day of Atonement, but it was temporary. It could, it could never fully cleanse in the way that the writer tells us that we need to be cleansed. Okay? So let's read chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant on all sides with gold, and which was golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak now in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second section, only the high priest goes, and he does it but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of the Reformation. Okay, what we have here is a detailed description of the tabernacle and the Day of Atonement. And so we're not going to go back and look at this because notice what he says there in verse... um, Five, of these things we cannot speak now in detail. So we're not going to go into detail that he even tells us. Don't go into detail. Let me give you the overview. So I'm going to give you the overview because that's what he says to do. In Exodus 25 and in 26, Moses is given the explicit details from God up on Mount Sinai of how to build the tabernacle. Okay? So what was the, what was the tabernacle? It was a tent, okay? It was a tent. It was placed in a court 150 feet by 75 feet, screened off from the rest of the camp by 15-foot curtains, okay? So what I'm going to do here, guys, is I'm going to explain it, and then, I'm going to show, then you're going to have a graphic on your thing, okay? So I'm, I'm going to... I've got it for you, but I'm going to explain how it works. He, he tells us right here exactly how it works. So, and you go back to Exodus 25 and 26 and you find this out. What he says is, first of all, you have the outer court. So, you have what what's called, okay, so here's the tabernacle. I'm, I'm looking, like, this is how you'd look at it from the bird's eye, like looking down at it, as opposed to three-dimensionally. So, here is the outer court. In the outer court, you would have the altar for the burning of the incense, okay? And so there was always incense burning with a fragrant aroma going up to heaven. And then even on on the outside, they had these places where you'd sacrifice bulls and goats before you'd even go in. Then as you walked further in, you had what was called the laver or the, 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 the cleansing basin, the sink, basically. And this is where the priest would wash his hands and go through all the purifications. So there was the water purifications that he had to go to before he could even get into the, to the, to the middle part of the, uh, of, the, of the tabernacle. Then was the holy place. This is 30 feet by 15 feet. This is just called the holy place. Not the most holy place, but the holy place. In the holy place, you had the altar of incense, another altar of incense with things going up, smoke going up. Um, and and I, what I want to show you is that the altar, the, a lot of these things in the tabernacle point to Jesus. Okay? 
So, when you have the fragrant offering going up to heaven, doesn't the Bible talk about Jesus offering himself up as an offering to the Lord? So when incense goes up to God, it's a reminder that Jesus offered himself up to the Lord on our behalf as our sacrifice. He was a fragrant offering of sacrifice. Also in there was the lampstand. So you had, if you guys think of a, like at Hanukkah, the lampstand that was giving off light. What did Jesus say about himself? He was the light of the world. Okay. Also in the holy place, you had a table with the bread of presence. So there was this bread on the table. What did Jesus say about himself? I am the bread of life. So a lot of these elements in the tabernacle were types and shadows and pictures of Jesus himself even. Okay. So that was what was in the holy place. Then as you move in, you go to what was the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was a perfect cube. 15 by 15 by 15. Perfect cube. The only other structure in the Bible that's a perfect cube is in Revelation at the end where the New Jerusalem comes down from heaven. The only two, the only two structures in the Bible that are perfect cubes are the Holy of Holies and the New Jerusalem coming down from heaven. Okay? What was in the Holy of Holies inside there? Well, and Hebrews here tells us that. Inside the Holy of Holies, obviously you had the Ark of the Covenant. That was the most sacred shrine or box or artifact of the ancient Israelites because what was inside of it? The Ten Commandments. What does Jesus say about himself? He is the the Word. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the, the Word of God in flesh. What's on top? of the Ark of the Covenant was what was called the mercy seat. It was a golden lid, like a lid, a seat. And on that lid, they would sprinkle the blood of the animals on top of the mercy seat. Now, it's a lid, it's a door, it's an opening. What does Jesus say about himself? He's the only way. He's the only door. He's the only entrance. He's also the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Above the mercy seat on top of this were the cherubim. Um, engraved in there were these angelic creatures which represented the holiness of God. So let me draw you. I drew it on the board, but here's a picture of it, okay? So it's on your sheet there. Do you have it on your sheet? Okay. So as you can see, it's got the dimensions here. 150 feet by 75 feet was the total tent, and it was 15, I think it was 15 feet tall. The curtains were 15 feet tall. So this ceiling in here is what, 9 feet? So you, you, it was a barrier. And as you walked in, you had the bronze altar, you had the basin, you went in, you had the lampstand, the table with the bread of presence, the incense altar in the holy place, then you had the most holy place. There was also right here, I didn't talk about it, what's right there? That's the veil. The veil that that you had to go through that separated the holy place from the most holy place, the holy of holies. Here's kind of a three-dimensional picture of it. Think about a tent that's covered. So there's like, it's for camouflaging. you got goat hair. All of this stuff, if you go back to Exodus, it gives you the exact um, descriptions of how this works. This is just a picture of the holy place and the most holy place. And so it's more of like a three-dimensional view and then here's a picture of what it would have looked like from the, um, the outside, the whole thing. You'd have smoke coming up. You, the smoke would be in the outer court coming up, but the inner court, that was reserved with, with coverings. Okay, That's basically what he shows us here in the first 10, chapter, or 10 verses of chapter 9 is he describes that for us. I mean, go back and read. He, I mean, he, he, he takes us through what happens when you walk into the tabernacle. Now, what happens on that one day of the year in the Holy of Holies? What happens? You've got the, one, the day, not days, the day of atonement. That one day. Okay. So let's just turn in our Bibles to Leviticus. We will look at this. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 16. And let's just read a few. Keep your finger in, in Hebrews here. And um, let's go back to Leviticus and see what happened on the Day of Atonement. Because 
the argument or the, the, the line of reasoning that the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's kind of taken us through this whole process. The priest came in. He washed his hands. He went into the holy place. He lit the candles. He made sure the bread of presence was there. Then on that one day, he went through the veil. He went into the holy of holies. He sacrificed the two goats. He sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat. And he sacrificed for the sins of the people only on that one day. And what does Hebrews tell us? He had to sacrifice for his own sins, and it was only for the unintentional sins of the people. We've talked about that week in and week out, right? Unintentional sins. Okay, so let's look at Leviticus 16, 14 through 17. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side, and in front of the mercy seat seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel, and because of their transgression, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Now what is the writer of Hebrews tells us? Here it says, He made atonement for their transgressions, but was it for all sin? Only unintentional sin. Okay? Go, to cha- go, go down to verses 32 through 33. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as a priest in his father's house shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall make atonement for the priest and for all the people of the symbol. And this shall be a statute forever for you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins and Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. So how often was this? Once a year, all of their sins except for unintentional, only unintentional sins and then it had to be repeated. Okay? So let's just talk about in verse 7. Let's go back to Hebrews. Let's look at verse 7. Chapter 9, verse 7. Into the second, the second, the Holy of Holies, only the high priest goes. He does it once a year, not without taking blood. He offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. We see here the frequency of it once a year, but the inadequacy of it. Why was it inadequate? Well, here, here's the frequency and the inadequacy of it. The high priest had to act, he's the only one that had access to the Holy of Holies. Only one man had access to the very presence of God. Not your average Israelite. Number two, it only happened once a year. Number three, since the high priest himself was a sinner, he had to atone for his sins as well as for the sins of the people. He had to make atonement for his own sins. He couldn't go in there. He was not sinless. He was not perfect. He went in there and and had to atone for his sins for his family before he could do it for the nation because he was a sinner. And then only unintentional sins were forgiven. Is this adequate to truly deal with sin? Look at verse 9, which is symbolic for this present age. According to this arrangement, this arrangement, this whole Day of Atonement ritual, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot what? Perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They only deal with regulations and food and drink until the time of the Reformation. So here's the thing, guys. What he's saying here, it was only a temporary washing of sins, but never actually penetrated to the depths of our soul to cleanse us inwardly and deal with our guilty consciences. It was incomplete because it only washed you on the outside. It never got down to the depths of your soul to cleanse you from the inside out. Now, I think we need to stop here 
and truly understand the nature of sin. Because if this Old Testament system could not fully, adequately, sufficiently deal with sin, we have to ask the question, well, then why couldn't it deal with sin? I mean, he tells us right there. Does he not tell us? In verse 9, this cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. It cannot. This Old Testament system cannot adequately deal with sin. It's only temporary. It's only external. It's washing. It cannot perfectly deal with sin. Why? Let's talk about sin. Three aspects of sin. This is the easy one. We sin by outward action, right? That's the way most people define sin, right? When you go on out in the street today and say, hey, can you tell me what sin is? What are most people going to say? I don't murder anybody. I don't lie. I don't cheat on my taxes, and I'm not an axe murderer. Well, good. I'm glad. That's a a good thing to, 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 to rise up and not be. Most people think of sin as outward actions, and that's true. Outward actions are sin. Paul tells us in Colossians 3, 5 through 6, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Is sexual immorality an outward sin? Yes. Is lying an outward sin? Yes. Is disobeying parents an outward sin? Yes. Those are all outward sins. But is there another type of sin? Do we just sin outwardly in our actions? Let's back up a bit. Can we sin by inward attitudes and desires? What does Jesus say in Matthew 5, 27 through 28? You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Outward action, right? But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So there's a sense that Okay, so here's the, I'm going to show you the, the progression. It's, it's, we're going backwards here. So you've got outward action. What causes you to sin? What, what's, what causes you to sin outwardly? Where does it start? In the heart. It starts in the heart. It starts inward. It starts with attitudes of the heart. Inward. Okay, then let's back up a question. Well, where does that come from? Well, you have to get back to the very root. <laughs> Back to the very core. And here's the bottom line. Number three, we actually sin because we've inherited a sin nature from birth. Let's look at some verses here that talk about what you inherited from birth. Why do you commit outward actions of sin? Because your heart and your attitudes and your inward heart wants to do that. Why does that do that? Because you're born that way. You've got inherited sin. Or you've got a sin nature that came from Adam. That's, that's where it came from. Well, let's look at some scriptures. David says in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So when are we sinners? At the point of conception. Now, wait a minute. You have not done anything good or bad yet. How can you be a sinner if you're still in the womb? You haven't committed an outward action because you haven't been born yet. Are you still a sinner? Why are you a sinner if you haven't committed outward actions? Because we inherited that from Adam. Now you may say, that's not fair. I wasn't there when Adam ate the fruit. You being there long enough would have done it yourself. Okay. He's that representative of the entire human race, and so what Adam did, all of us have inherited. And as a matter of fact, Romans 5.12 tells us that. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who's the one man? Adam. And death through sin, so what? Death spread to all men because all sinned. What does Jesus say about this? In Mark 7.21-23, Jesus says, For from within, out of the heart of a man, Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within a person and they defile a person. Why do they come from within? Because you were born that way. Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now we're talking about lost people here, okay? Regenerated born-again Christians have renewed hearts that can choose not to be this? 
because you've been renewed. But a person born without being a Christian, this is true of them from birth, okay, until God changes their hearts. That's why the new covenant is so important. Jeremiah 13, 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also, can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil? What's the answer here? Can an Ethiopian one day wake up and say, I don't want to have dark pigmentation, I want to have light pigmentation, unless you're Michael Jackson. But back then, sorry, I didn't mean to be offensive, but back then they didn't have the possibility to do that. So can a leopard wake up and say, I don't want to have spots anymore, I want to be a tiger? Why can't the Ethiopian change his skin and why can't the leopard change his spots? What makes it impossible for them to do that? They were born that way and they inherited that from their parents okay and you may think well that's an interesting analogy we're talking about an ethiopian changing his skin color and a leopard changing his spots what does it have to do with anything what's the next statement he says there then can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil what's his point you really can't do good because it's in your nature you're born evil you're born sinful it's part of who you inherited that from your parents who inherited that from their parents going all the way back to adam ephesians 2 1 through 3, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So here's the point. What do we need? Not only do we need atonement to take away our individual and personal sins, outward actions, but we also need an atonement to actually cleanse us from the pollution of original sin. Do you see that? The day of atonement can never, the day of atonement could never cleanse you from original sin. The day of atonement can never get down to this core nature. The, the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament can never deal with Adam's problem of giving us his sin through inherited guilt. The Old Testament Day of Atonement can never get to the heart. All it could do was, if for a year it could cleanse you from outward actions, and only for a year. And even only unintentional outward actions. Okay? So when he goes back and says, in verse 9, these sacrifices offered cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Do you see now why they cannot do that? How can they not perfect the conscience? They can't get down to the root of your real problem. They can't get down to your sin that you were born with. They can't get rid of that. The Old Testament can't get rid of the heart and the attitudes. All it can do is temporarily wash you from outward actions for a year. So it's, it's insufficient until something happens. What does verse 10 say? They only deal with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until what? The time of... Mine says Reformation. Does anybody else have a different word? The new order. I don't know if I like the new order. It sounds like the new world order. (laughs) The Reformation. It's an interesting word. This is the only time this particular word ever shows up in the Bible. But it means, I think, the new covenant that Jesus would accomplish in a sacrifice. Okay? So, Old Covenant. What did the Old Covenant? We'll just call it Old C. O.C. Orange County. The Old Covenant. What could it do? It could only temporarily cleanse you from outward actions for a year. Could it ever, could the Old Covenant ever get down to your heart and your attitude? Could it ever cleanse you from the original sin you've inherited from Adam? But when the Reformation comes, or this new covenant, what do you think it's going to be able to do? It's going to be able to get down to the inherited sin that we got from Adam and to the heart, which will eventually be, this will be a complete cleansing of yourself from sin that goes to the very depth of who you are. And that's where he's moving in the next section. So verses 11 through the end of the chapter basically 11 through 28 says this Since Jesus 
is the mediator of the new covenant, his death on the cross is sufficient and powerful to completely atone for all sin. Now, let's just stop for a moment. Because most of you at this point are thinking, okay, yeah, yeah. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I've heard this my whole life. Should you ever get over that? And should you ever get over the fact that he is, his death on the cross is sufficient and powerful to completely atone for all sin? Not just the outward actions, but your heart and your attitudes and also your nature. He is the only one that's able by His death on the cross to fully transform you from the inside out into a new creation to get down to the root of your ultimate problem. Okay? So it's not behavior modification where He kind of makes you do a little bit better here and there. The cross and regeneration and salvation get down to the root of who you are as inherited from Adam and transform you from the inside out and wash you and cleanse you and and save you and redeem you in a way that the Old Testament never could. Now, let's, what we're going to do is let's just read verses 11 through 28. And what I want to do here is I want to go thematic. As opposed to going verse by verse, I found, for lack of a better biblical number, seven glorious truths about the atonement of Christ. So let's just read 11 through 28, and then we'll come back and look at these seven, seven truths, okay? Verse 11. How does verse 11 start? But. Don't you love but? What does but mean? What I've just said before is insufficient. It can't do what it claims it could do. But when Christ appeared as a what? High priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal Redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant of the God that God commanded you. In the same way, he sprinkled the blood, both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that it comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. There is a lot there. So what I'm going to do here to make it easy on us and to make it a little bit more thematic, I want to look at seven glorious truths about what Jesus did for us on the cross. Okay? Now there's a key word that's repeated all throughout this, once and for all. What was the Day of Atonement? Was it once and for all? It was repeated. Was it sufficient? No. Could it fully and completely atone? No. So Jesus comes in once and for all. So here's the first thing he does. Jesus secured our eternal redemption once and for all. Look at verse 12. 
He entered not into the holy places by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing or obtaining an eternal redemption. He, when Jesus died on the cross, he, he accomplished something. What did he accomplish? What did he obtain? What did he purchase? What did he secure? An eternal what? What's the word there? Redemption. Okay, well, what is redemption? What does that word mean? The word redemption is very important. It can also mean ransom. Okay? The word redemption, redeem, ransom, that, that family of words conveys buying or purchasing out of slavery. God redeemed or bought or purchased or delivered Israel out of Egyptian slavery by the blood of the Passover lamb. Jesus has bought or purchased us out of spiritual bondage by his own blood. Let's look at some verses that talk about this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. He redeemed us from the curse. Ephesians 1 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sin, trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Titus 2 13 and 14. We're waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to do what? Redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 1 Peter 1, 18-19, knowing that you were ransomed, you were redeemed, you were purchased from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but what were you bought with? The precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. So what's the, what's the, what's the point here? Think about you personally tonight, if you're saved. Where were you before your salvation? You were in bondage. Bondage to what? Bondage to your sin nature? Bondage to your heart and attitude and inward, act, and inward thoughts? And in bondage to your outward actions? And all those things did for you was keep you in bondage spiritually. You couldn't get yourself out. You couldn't try hard enough to release yourself. You were imprisoned by your own sin and it kept you in bondage. And what did Jesus obtain? our eternal redemption. Did he just make it hypothetical? What does it say? He obtained it, which means what? On the cross, he actually did it. What did he actually do on the cross? It wasn't a potentiality. It wasn't a hypothetical. He actually obtained your redemption while dying on the cross, which means this. As he was suffering on the cross for your sins, he had you in mind, specifically. Dying for you specifically, redeeming you specifically, taking upon all of this of you specifically. Not just your outward actions, not just your attitudes of your heart, but even your sin nature. That's why it says he became sin, a sin offering. That's an amazing thing to think about because did Jesus have to do that? The Old Testament system, could that, could that ever work? Could that ever happen in the Old Testament? Could it ever be an eternal redemption? No, it was only once a year. And it only was outward actions. Okay, second truth. Jesus purified our consciences and freed us to serve God. Look at verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. What does it say? What did it say back up in verse 9? The Old Testaments could not perfect the consciences. But what has Jesus done? His sacrifice has purified our consciences. Now, what does this mean? This is the inward cleansing of our whole person before the living God. Not only did Jesus come to forgive the outward actions, the actual sins we commit, not only did He come to redeem our heart and attitudes and inward, and inward thoughts, but He also came to die for our sin nature. He died to overcome the pollution of original sin inherited from Adam. 
That's important. What would happen? Think about this. The Bible, think about this. Maybe I've never thought about this. I just now thought about this, so I've never thought about it either. So we're experimenting here. I think it's true, though. If Jesus had only purchased your outward actions on the cross, what would be the potentiality that you could still sin from your nature and not be free from that and still have to be held accountable for that sin? Yes, Dale. That's why he could never come as a, a man, right. a full man. He had to come as a child. And he's born into that sin nature and therefore be sinless to yeah. die on the cross yeah. because otherwise it would have been just his outward act. Yeah, exactly. He'd come fully man. Yeah. Died on the cross three years later. Yeah. Like if, yeah, if you like you pop plop down from heaven full full grown. Yeah. So think about it this way. What makes you guilty before God? All three of these, right? So if Jesus just died for your outward actions, that's just basically putting a band-aid over it. He has to get to the very root and die ultimately for your sin nature. <laughs> as well as for your actions. That's why the Bible sometimes says Jesus died for our sins and Jesus died for sin. What's the difference between sin and sins? Sin, singular, is our nature. Sins, plural, are the actions we commit because of our nature. And so when Jesus came and died on the cross, when he cleansed our consciences, he got down to the very root and dealt with both of those, the sin problem of who we are at our core, as well as the actions that flow out of that, which is very, very important because the Old Testament was never able to do that. Okay? He purified our consciences. Think about this for a moment. He purified our consciences from what? Dead works. Now, what are dead works? We really don't know, but we do have a passage in Isaiah that says this. Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who's unclean, and all of our righteous deeds, all of our good works, are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and in our iniquities, like the wind, it takes us away. So think about this. Not only did Jesus die for your sin nature, not only did Jesus die for your heart attitude and inward actions, not only did Jesus die for your bad outward actions, but Jesus actually died for your righteous deeds. Because what are they? Filthy rags. So when you look at your salvation, is there anything you can contribute? I wrote a Sentinel article about five years ago, and I used one word that I got, and somebody wrote to the Sentinel, was really upset. She wrote a letter to the editor. I wrote this word. There is not one iota, the word was iota, there's not one iota that we can contribute to our salvation. And this lady wrote in the Sentinel, she says, I can't believe pastors are teaching that we don't contribute anything to our salvation. And when the pastor, Sean, says we can't contribute one iota of salvation, he's basically making it sound like that we can't do anything to, 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 to earn or to deserve our salvation. And I said, yeah, you understood me. You got me right. But she had a problem with that. And I'm not sure what background she was from, but she must have felt like there must have been something. What does the human heart think? There's got to be one, some, one thing I've got to do to, to somehow get this, get me over the hump. Doesn't it go against conventional wisdom and, <clears throat> and what you believe to think that, that, that it's just totally, there's nothing you can do? What, what are we conditioned from a very young age to think? I've got, if I don't, if you snooze, you lose. There's no such thing as a free lunch. No pain, no gain. You've got to work hard to get ahead. Now, those things aren't wrong, are they, in life? But when you take them into salvation, what are we tempted to think? There must be something I can do to cleanse my conscience, to deal with my heart, and to modify my actions. And the Bible says you cannot. There's not one iota you can do. Only Jesus, because He obtains your eternal redemption, can get down to the root and deal with all of this through His redemption. The only thing you can do is trust. Trust in what He did for you. Okay? But notice what it says here. 
He's purified our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. Think about that word purify. What does, he, what does purify mean? He's cleansed the conscience. This goes back to the new covenant promise. What did God promise in the new covenant? I will cleanse you how? Internally. What does Ezekiel 36, 25, and 27? God says, I will sprinkle, purify, clean water on you. You should be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What happens when you become saved? What, what, what is that dead heart? That sin nature. What happens to that? You become a new creation and God comes and takes that old and gives you new. He purifies your conscience. In other words, He cleanses you from the inside out. Okay? What's the third blessing here of the cross? Number three, Jesus called us to receive an internal inheritance reserved in heaven for us. Look at verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called, he's called us, what may we receive? The promised eternal inheritance. What is that? Well, Peter tells us. 1 Peter 1, 3-5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead to what? To an inheritance. What does this inheritance look like? It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. Where is it? It's kept in heaven. For who? For you. And what's going on right now? By God's power, you're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Jesus' death on the cross bought you heaven, bought you a place in heaven, bought you an inheritance, gave you an inheritance. He's delivered us. He's called us. What has He called us out of? Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what's He delivered us? What's He called us out of? The domain of darkness, bondage, sin, guilt, shame. And what's He done? He's transferred us into a new kingdom where we have forgiveness of sins. Okay. These just get more exciting, guys. I have to contain my excitement. Number four. If those weren't enough... Jesus represents us in heaven before the very face of God. Look at verse 24. Look at verse 24. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence, or literally before the face of God, on whose behalf? On our behalf. What's the problem? What's this problem here? Because of our sin nature, because of our inward attitudes and actions and outward actions, do we have access to stand before the presence of a holy God in heaven? No. We in our sin would never in a million years have access to the very face of God, the very presence of God. But why do we? Because of what Jesus did. Look at what Jesus did. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. What does Jesus do? He makes us righteous so that we can be acceptable to be in the very presence of God. Right now, as believers, we have the blessing of having the face of the Lord shine upon us because of Jesus. I want you to think about that imagery for a moment. Have you ever, guys, have ever heard of the ironic blessing? Maybe some of your, if you grew up in, in Presbyterian or Lutheran or Episcopalian churches, sometimes they would end the service with the ironic blessing. It's from Numbers 6, 22 through 26. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his son saying, Thus you shall say, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, Here's the blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. 
what is that blessing mean? What wording, what wording do you see there? May the Lord make His face and may His countenance or face be... Okay, so this question is... The, the question is, what is true blessing? If you, were to, if you were to ask somebody, hey, what does it mean to truly be blessed? If you were to go out in Sterling today or in the surrounding areas, Pete's, Fleming, Haxton, Iliff, and say, what does it mean to be blessed? Got a good family. Got a good job. Got good crops. Got a good home. Got a good retirement. I'm blessed. According to this, what's the greatest blessing? To have the very face of God to shine upon you, meaning that His joy and His presence, you have unfettered access to the very presence of God. That's the greatest blessing. Now, what I want you to think about here for a moment is this. What was Moses' greatest desire when he lived? He wanted to see the face of God. Why? Because it represented all of the glory of God. And what did God do? God put him in the, the cleft of the rock and let his backside glory pass by. What is this blessing called? What do we call a blessing? Do you know what the word is? It's called a benediction. Usually when you end a worship service, you end it with a benediction. A benediction just basically means you as the minister or the pastor are pronouncing a blessing over the people that God would walk with them, they would be before the face of God, they'd experience all the glory of God in their lives, that they would have access to God, His face would shine upon them. They would have this intimacy with God. Okay, think about all those imageries. Now I want you to think about when Jesus was on the cross... And he was hanging there. What did he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, is that me ringing? Somebody's calling me. Can't answer right now. Um, When Jesus was hanging on the cross, was God's face shining upon him at those moments? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you. May He give you peace. Think about what Jesus heard in those moments when He's hanging on the cross. May the Lord curse you. May the Lord turn His face against you. May the Lord pour out His wrath upon you. May the Lord turn His face away from you. May the Lord give you warfare. What did Jesus experience on the cross? It wasn't the benediction, the blessing of God. It's what we call the malediction. The very cursing, the anti-blessing, if you will. Now think about this for a moment. When Jesus was abandoned, when Jesus was cursed, God turned His face away. But what does this passage of Scripture say? Because Jesus experienced that in our place, on our behalf, He's able to bring us into the very face or presence of God. Now, ultimately, we will experience that in heaven one day. But right now, as Christians, we have the benediction or the blessing of God upon our lives because Christ died in our place. Does that make sense? So go back to verse 24. Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are the copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Can we get there on our own behalf? No. How can Jesus get there on our behalf? Because He died in our place. And now He brings us into the very face of God. The face of God shines upon us, and one day we will see Him as He is. Okay? Number five. Jesus put away all of our sins once and for all. Now you may think, well, that's, that's yeah, okay, cool. 
But what has he been contrasting all this time with the old covenant? Could it ever be put away once and for all? No. Look at verse 26. For then he would have to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, Jesus, he appeared once and for all. There's that once and for all at the end of ages to do what? Put away sin. Does it say sins? Put away sin by the sacrifice of his self. The word put away means to annul or to abolish publicly. And again, notice, it's once and for all. 1 John 3, 5. You know that He appeared in order to take away sin, and in Him there is no sin. Put it away. Number six. Jesus bore the sins of many once and for all. Look at verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Circle that word bore. It's an important word in the Bible. To bear the sins of many. It goes back to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. That's a prophecy about Jesus. What does Isaiah 53, 12 say? Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He bore our sin in his body. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by His wounds you've been healed. That we might die to sin, not sins, but sin. So Jesus literally, physically, spiritually, in His body while He's hanging there on the cross, took our sins. Now you may say, how in the world does that happen? Because he's perfect. How can a perfect God in the flesh actually take all of our human sin upon himself? Well, because he's God. And God credits or imputes or treats Jesus as if he was us, even though he's not. This always amazes me when I think about Jesus on the cross. For 33 years, he never once experienced sin. He was perfect. But the very first time he experiences sin, it's not his own, but it's the sin of many. In a concentrated moment. And not just sins, but sin. Going all the way back to Adam. It's hard to wrap our minds around all that Jesus was doing there on the cross for us. But here's the seventh thing. Jesus will return to save us from final judgment. Look at verses 27 and 28. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, no reincarnation, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. When Jesus comes back, he's not going to die on the cross again. He's already done that. What's he going to do? He's going to save the he's going to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He's going to punish and judge those who are against him. Are we waiting for the Savior? What does it say there? He will bear the sins once for all, but he's going to come a second time to those who are what? Eagerly waiting for him. Philippians 3:20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you eagerly waiting? 1 Thessalonians 1.10, And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. 
And here's a passage of scripture I dealt with today on my podcast and talking about hell. But First Thess- Second Thessalonians one seven through ten. In the context of Jesus coming back, to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Okay. Those are the seven truths of what Jesus did on the cross. But verse 27 is very important. It teaches the reality and finality of death and judgment. So what I want to do is I want to give you some differing views on final judgment. What what does verse 27 say? Just as it is appointed for man to die how many times? And then after that comes judgment. And then after that comes heaven or hell. Now, throughout history, there's been differing views on final judgment. So let me just share some of these with you. Oh, come on, computer. I'm not trying to do that. Okay, four differing views on final judgment. Oh, come on. There we go. All right, number one is universalism. This is the most liberal and most extreme view that states that everyone will go to heaven. Everyone, everywhere, regardless of what they've done with Christ, will be saved. There is no hell. There is no judgment. Everybody's going to heaven. You know anybody that believes that? Could be. Number two, pluralism. This is a little different. Pluralism says everyone who obeys their particular religion is saved, for each religion supplies an independent road to ultimate reality. You may hear somebody say something like this. If you're a sincere Buddhist, you will go to heaven because you've been sincere in your Buddhism. If you're a sincere Hindu, you will go to heaven because you've been sincere in your Hinduism. Your faith has given you enough knowledge of God, and if you're just sincere in following that, you'll go to heaven based upon your sincerity. A couple problems. How do you define sincerity? And number two, it leaves out Jesus. Okay? We get a little bit trickier here with number three, inclusivism. Everyone who obeys the general revelation they have based on their conscience are saved through Jesus. Whether they actually repent and believe in Him, they may be saved without even knowing about Jesus. So inclusivism says this, if the person in the deep dark jungles of Africa looks up at heaven and sees a sun and says, oh, there's a sun. A God must have put that sun there. I'm not sure what God it is, but I'm going to worship the God who put that son there. They would say that person's going to heaven because that's all the knowledge they've been given. They've never been given the knowledge of Jesus. They've never been given the Bible. But based on what they've got in nature, that's enough to get them saved. What does Romans chapter 1 say? That's enough to condemn them. Okay. Now here's another view that's interesting. After death evangelism. Those who have never heard receive an opportunity to believe in Jesus after death. Popularized by the Roman Catholic view of purgatory. What does purgatory mean? It's a place slash condition in the next world between heaven and hell where those who died need to be purified through suffering until the final judgment. Once they've suffered enough for their sins, they may be able to enter heaven. Here's another view. This is a person that says, I believe they have to have faith in Christ. I don't believe in universalism. I don't believe in after-death evangelism. I don't believe in pluralism. I believe they have to have faith in Jesus, but I believe this. This is the universal opportunity before death. All people are given opportunity to be saved by God sending the gospel by an angel, by a dream, by some extra special um, divine revelation at the moment or right before death. They say right before a person dies, God's going to give them the opportunity to hear the gospel problem is where do you find a bible verse that actually teaches that if that were true 
then why do we go to India? Why do we go to the Bogota? Because if they're already good, the worst thing we can do is go tell them about Jesus. Because once we tell them about Jesus, then they're accountable. They weren't accountable before, but once they hear about Jesus, they're accountable. Dale, were you going to say something? Oh, okay, I thought you were. Here's the last one which I think is the most biblical. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I added one there. Reincarnation. That's not biblical. <laughs> I forgot. Yeah, reincarnation, obviously, you know. But exclusivism, this is the belief I think that we would need to believe. It's not popular. It's not warm and fuzzy. It's not politically correct, but I think it's biblical. God does not provide salvation to those who fail to hear of Jesus and come to faith in Him before they die. All those who die without a conscious personal relationship with Jesus Christ alone will go to hell. That's, that's basically what we believe. Now, here's, let's make this very practical tonight. When you think about these seven things that Jesus has done for us in the New Covenant, getting down to the very depths of our hearts, our souls, our sin nature, what, what should, and knowing that Jesus is going to come back and there's going to be a judgment and, and all these things, what should these um, truths actually produce in us? Well, I could think of four different things. Here's number one. They all start with I. I got real pastory, real preachery, made, made them all start with I, okay? So you ready? Sometimes I do that. I don't know why. It should intensify our worship for Jesus. Would, that, would you agree with that? It should intensify our worship when you know what Christ has really done for you on the cross and what he's really purchased you out of and how he's gone down to the depth of your soul to, to, to redeem you from that spiritual bondage and he's dealt fully with your sin, why would you not want to worship him for that? What's the greatest way to begin worshiping Jesus? Think about the cross. Think about what he's done. It should intensify your worship. Okay? But number two, thinking about these things should increase our hope to hold fast our faith in the midst of trials and persecutions. Why would it increase our hope? Because no matter what you're going through right now, no matter what trial, no matter what temptation, no matter what hardship, no matter what persecution, what's the one thing that you have going for you? He has purchased you and you will have an eternal inheritance and you will be before the face of God and this is a light momentary trial compared to the glory of being in His presence forever. And when you think about your, the cross and what Jesus has done for you, it should increase your hope just to hold fast. This is nothing. What I'm going through is nothing compared to what is waiting for me because of what Christ has done for me. Number three, it should impact our holiness and living. Jesus Christ did not die on the cross for us to say, well, he loves forgiving and I love sinning, so let's go on and have this great relationship. It's not meant to us to go live however we want. When you think about, the, think about what he's gotten to, he's purified your conscience. He's gotten down to the root of your sin nature. He's rearranged your heart. Not rearranged it. He's reformed it. He's renewed it. He's rebirthed you. He's resurrected you to a new spiritual life. You are a new person in Christ. Therefore, because of all that Christ has done, it should increase the impact your holiness. You should, you should walk in holiness. You shouldn't just keep sinning. Um, you should walk in holiness. And then number four, it should incite us to share the gospel of Christ's atonement with others. You shouldn't just keep this to yourselves. If this is so great and so awesome and so wonderful, why would you leave this to yourself? It should incite you to share this gospel, share what Christ has done, share the joy you have, share all these beautiful things that he's done with others so that they can experience that. Um, they can be released from their bondage. They can come to faith in Christ. They can be forgiven. Okay?